0: Welcome to Voices from the Middle. We're joined by Laura Eikoff this morning. And Laura, I'm really glad you're here. We know thank each you. other, but uh, our audience doesn't know who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: So thank you for inviting me, Michael. I am Laura Eikoff. I currently work as a senior director of HR and learning for a local biomed life science company. I was born and raised in Italy. I lived in the Netherlands for a few years as a military dependent and have been a proud Texan for about 20 years now. Uh, so I called San Antonio home for sure. And um, I got here through a very interesting path. The uh, choice of profession wasn't random. I think if we look back at what brings us to select a certain career, there is usually a moment in time when we recognize why we developed a certain interest. And in my case, uh, growing up in Turin, Italy, middle-class family, my parents were very big on education, on being informed. Europeans are very uh, uh, passionate about staying uh, up-to-date with current events. It's considered a badge of courage. In many cases, education is still considered more valuable than wealth, uh, although that's changing. And uh, as a kid, I saw my dad, who was a public relations manager and was a brilliant man, but coming from a very poor family, never having the opportunity to go to college. As a matter of fact, he finished high school in the evening, having to go to work at age 14. And he finally, in the late 70s, earned his college degree at age 47 in, public, in uh, political science. And in those days, education was not the purview of working parents, Education was uh, something that kids did out of high school. Uh, And by education, I mean college, higher education. So uh, my dad was one of the first adults I know who went to college, well, in his 40s, with a family already Mm well-developed. Nowadays, that's a norm. And um, the other day, I attended a conference where I discovered that 300,000 folks in San Antonio have some college credentials but no credentials. Some college hours, some college education, but no credentials, no degree per se. And this can be a handicap. So even though a lot is being said these days uh, about the paradigm of education versus experience, education is still a great uh, premium for those who pursue a corporate career. And uh, seeing my dad working during the day and going to school at night, sort of ignited my, my interest in adult and uh, continuing education. And that was my first part, um, the first part of my career. So as a military spouse, I worked for Army education centers and community affairs groups for a few years. And not until um, I decided to pursue my master's degree, which is in human resources, human resource education to be precise, I made the cross over to the HR side. So that was my second um, career life. And when we retired in San Antonio, I actually uh, obtained my first corporate job. So I'm a late bloomer when it comes to that. But my focus has always been on primarily helping other adults find their voice, find themselves, obtain uh, opportunities to improve their lot through career and education, and bringing them together to share those experiences.
0: Laura, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was, um, aside from the fact that you know, I like you as a person, this is that uh, it's easy to, um, a lot of folks are interested in education, but um, again, one of the reasons you're here is that um, you're one of the few people I know that is, I think, a good manager. And the th- the whole theme of this podcast is about how difficult management is, I think, and yet how we give it very short uh, sh- short shrift. We fall in love with words like leadership, innovation, creativity. There's millions of books on that. But when it comes to management, it's kind of like ho-hum and yet I find it's one of the more undervalued skills and very difficult. So I, I, I love the fact that you're an educator, you've got this commitment to uh, to education, but at the same time, you put yourself in a role that is demanding. So talk to me a little bit how you see this thing, uh, how we think about management and compared to leadership and, and the challenges associated with, this, associated
1: with it. Well, that's a great question and a great segue. There is a connection, although maybe not obvious. If you um, are uh, committed, to helping others learn and develop and grow, your job as a manager is a natural evolution. We often forget that the essence of getting things done through others is what defines management. And the ability to influence them, to follow you in your vision, and to get things done for you spontaneously or with little prodding is the essence of leadership. So there are some parallels in uh, our ability to succeed as an educator and as a manager, although obviously there are other implications. So being a good manager, which is something I aspire to, I don't presume to have uh, arrived to that yet, but I'm working on it, entails caring. So the leadership aspect of management is important Because it helps you focus on what your employees bring to the table. As a manager, I do subscribe to the traditional definition that, if we have to be brief, right, management is about getting tasks done, leadership is about influencing people. So influencing people and getting things done, as a manager, should come uh, together as, as, as one set of requirements. Every manager should find a voice to be a leader. Not all leaders are managers. So that's the main distinction. Mm-hmm. You can see leaders in the mailroom because they take initiative and are able to rally others up to get things done, even though they don't have the formal authority, but a manager to be really effective has to find uh, a way to create a, a productive rapport with employees, not only because they care about the employees, but because it's good business. So the reason why managing is difficult is because it doesn't come with a prescription book, just like parenting, although we don't want to necessarily equate the two things. But the best advice I was ever given was my, my dear Dutch friend, who was the best manager and parent that I know. She worked for Shell in the Netherlands, and she always told me when I had my children were little, to be a good mother, you need to give your kids good education a good example, and all your love. And if you take that and translate it in what you do as a team leader, it can be very profound. If your employees know that you care, they'll forgive you your mistakes, they will give you the benefit of the doubt, you're unlikely to be accused of favoritism, and they will do good work for you because they'll be proud to show you that your belief in them is well placed. As a middle manager... There are different circumstances that come in addition to the ability to get things done through others and to get them done effectively because you know your people. You assign the right tasks to the right people. They complement your weaknesses. Um, There's the human element that makes people want to come to work because they respect you. You don't have to demand respect. You earn it. And you're humble. Humility is probably the most essential quality we can have as leaders, especially as servant leaders. And especially if we uh, attempt to be transformational in that, we want to make a difference in the lives of the people that work for us, with us, and around us. And sometimes managers, and I know we've had some conversations about this, do not get the full credit for the way they can and do impact the bottom line in their organizations. And I know you've been very uh, focused on understanding why there is so much emphasis placed on the top leaders of an organization. And we invest most of our development dollars on those individuals because they're the ones who are expected to produce the biggest return on investment. And yet, the conversation, this is such a timely topic for us who work uh, as directors in organizations, the conversation nowadays with markets rapidly evolving, product lines changing almost overnight, technology being almost impossible to keep up with, competition being fierce, companies are risking or are failing or are risking to fail, not because they don't have intelligent people with. Great complexity to process information, um, not because they don't have a strong set of values and even a vision, not because they don't have shiny, great strategic plans based on data and anything that we need to project. You know how we're going to achieve our our mission, but because there isn't enough emphasis on execution. And when we talk about execution, we mean obviously translating those shiny plans and those beautiful vision photos into quantifiable action and return on investment and opportunities for everybody to thrive within their organization, opportunities to influence the market, and maybe to be pioneers So one of the reasons why I've I've, I've loved being a director is because I am at that middle management level that is still very entrenched with operations. And um, you, you get to work on processes, designing them, refining them, improving them. You have the opportunity to provide intelligent recommendations to your higher up. And to translate their direction into plans. So that's where the rubber meets the road. And when I hear that directors or middle managers are the backbone of our organization, I strongly believe it. And uh, true, most of the accolades go to the senior leadership team when things go well. But if you are self directed and your joy comes from getting things done and seeing results, if you're one of those people who is an achiever <laughs> on the Strengths Finder model, um, And one of those people for whom to win is to get what you want, and if what you want is to get things done, that's a great place to be. So that's the number one reason I like operating in that space. The second is you cannot be a successful middle manager by yourself, because by nature and definition of what you do, you create processes and you monitor them, and you improve them, and you ensure that they meet the customer needs, whether internal or external, that is seldom a one-person job or one-team job. Processes usually have cross-functional implications. So to be successful, you have to be very uh, careful with respecting the integration of what you do, considering your stakeholders, bringing them together, understanding their needs, negotiate, create win-wins, Ensuring that at the end of the day, you have uh, bare buy-in so that you're not going to try and push um, a process uh, on your own. And I learned from one of the leaders that we both know, and I always quote this, when uh, there is no process, it becomes political.
0: Mm.
1: And it's so true. In the absence of a clear path, we get things done using Personal relationships, personal influence, and it's not as effective. It's not as enduring, and it may not uh, make you a popular person in the end. So to, to win that battle and lose the war is not worth it. I'm a strong believer that if you don't find a way, and that's much of what I do these days, is finding a way to bring together people that sometimes don't get along, they don't know what one another does, They're not interested because they're so busy, focused on their own little silo. They're not interested in exploring the synergies that come with uh, this cross-functional collaboration. And seeing them talk and build and conserve, sharing systems, sharing tips. um, At the pace of today's market, without collaboration, social learning, and all the things that come with that, there is no execution. Execution becomes delayed, denied, and we cannot spend time constantly reinventing our strategy. At some point, we have to pull that trigger and maybe have mechanisms to um, monitor our progress. So in in a nutshell, that's what I like about middle management. It's an opportunity to concretely make a difference by translating strategic plans, by bringing people together to get things done, and by enforcing accountability. So when there is lack of execution, often it's because uh, managers, leaders in general, are not held accountable for their actions. So if you have a beautiful strategic plan, but then you're way off on your projections and you just dismiss it as, well, well bad luck, you know that's not going to help an organization. So the ability to be truly adults and to say, okay, I messed up here. This is not a good projection. Let's figure out a plan B. What is our contingency plan? Uh, how else can we appease this customer? How else can we get this product done? by slightly modifying the specifications. Those are the conversations that need to occur. And it can only occur in a culture that is not punitive, uh, but where people truly work together to achieve solutions.
0: That's really well said. I want to follow up on something you said about accountability, because what triggered it was when you said punitive. And I think too often people think about accountability as, again, being um, uh, punishment or impending punishment. Like, I'm not going to be accountable because I'm going to get you know, in trouble or, or whatever. So how do you build a culture of accountability where it's, I hate the empowerment word, but where it's effective at least rather than punitive?
1: Well, it's, it's definitely challenging. And it's challenging because we're dealing with people where defensiveness is a natural response. Nobody wants to be in trouble. Nobody wants to be the one who makes a project fail. Um, we see that when uh, times are tough, As one of my co-workers always says, people start eating their own. So the blame game, uh, it's a survival game. I think the first step is communication and communicating desired outcomes and providing clear direction as what the expectation is. So that it's easy then to trace the relationship between deliverables and results. There are times when egregious mistakes may be unforgivable but for the most part if people are working hard and are willing to take feedback and are coming with solutions to rectify the course, we can hold them accountable without destroying them. We learn more from our mistakes than we learn from from our successes, we we quickly move on from successes, and we tackle the next challenge, which is probably a not so nice byproduct of today's environment, you know, market environment. You can only build a culture by practicing what you preach and sharing examples. Um, the most powerful question we can ask a leader is, "What is the biggest mistake you made, and how did you get out of it, and what did you learn?" I think it's so powerful to be able to go to sleep at night and say, you know what, I took accountability for my mistake. I didn't blame my employee. I didn't hide behind them. I I did my best to fix it. And my experience has been true leaders with integrity, they'll appreciate that from their lieutenants. They'll uh, be less respectful of those who quickly tend to pass the blade.
0: Since you brought it up, I was going to ask you a little bit later, but let me ask you now, If you, as a middle manager, what is one of the uh, failures that, that you can recall that has made a difference that you learned from to make you a more successful manager at this point?
1: So I had a horrible project. It went horribly wrong, and it was a conversion, a payroll conversion. Many reasons uh, led to that. Specifically, the the system itself that we had selected was uh, a dud. And although the producers were uh, the biggest payroll company in the world, they eventually had to take it off the market. They gave us something that wasn't working. Pair that with my relative inexperience as a manager, where I felt that as the manager, I had to have all the answers. So my answer to disastrous you know, failed payrolls and and GLs that were not balancing and was to do more work and more work and more work. And I remember for a year, I worked six days a week, 10, 12 hours a day because I didn't want to admit that, you know, this was a disaster. And, you know, maybe the support system I had at the time wasn't able to support me and actually trusted me to get this done. And I got it done, but it almost killed me. So what I learned from that is, unfortunately, we don't know what we don't know. And we don't know what we don't know until we know it. (laughs) But when you're in over your head, there are always opportunities to get help. And you can go to your bosses and say, look, this is not working. I am doing my best. I think there's something wrong with the system. And they're looking at you, well, maybe you're the reason because you're inexperienced. And I said, Let me get somebody here that can fix this. Let's consider another solution. So sometimes you have to ask for help. Hard work is not always a substitute for solutions. You cannot, there are some things that cannot be fixed and you don't know that they can't because you're not experienced enough to recognize how it should be working. So that was a definite um, learning point for me. Um, No matter how educated, experienced, and hardworking you are, sometimes you just have to realize when it's time to bring in somebody else to help.
0: Is there any other advice you'd give to, let's say, 22-year-old Laura Eickhoff?
1: So if I think back to when I... My first managerial job, I was... 27 years old, and I became the director of an evening school for languages. I had 10 teachers that were all older than I was. Luckily, it was a fairly informal relationship. I learned a tremendous amount from that little one-man band type of work where I did just about everything. The best advice I can give today's 22-year-olds, and then I'll get back to me, is get off the computer. You're great at it. Those skills are going to be helpful, but what's going to hold you back is not going to be your inability to Snapchat. It's going to be your inability to talk to a human being, to facilitate a meeting, to bring people together to negotiation and conflict resolution. Get out there and meet real people. Get off the computer. As much as I love technology, and I am on every platform you can think of sparingly, but frequently. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. Um, What we're finding today in organizations. We just recently completed in my company an inventory of skill gaps that we have to be successful. And because we are a biotech company, we thought we'd hear, oh, we need better lab techs. Oh, we need to have more experienced phlebotomists. The top three skill sets that managers agreed upon from all different functions were, number one, critical thinking and strategic thinking, communication skills, and self-management, work ethic, you know, you name it. So they were soft skills, so to speak. And we tend to scoff at those because they, you know, they are perceived as expendable sometimes. But we also know from doing... um, competency work, as far as leadership, that what derails our leaders is not their lack of technical knowledge. Once you reach a certain point in your career, let's assume you make it to director or VP level, even though you're an introvert, loner, but you're excellent at what you do. Well how are you going to move up from there if you have not developed that ability to interact with your team members? to have the difficult conversations, to motivate, to be visionary, to share your vision. So what makes or breaks a career to this day, despite uh, drones and uh, artificial intelligence and robots, is there always going to be a human component, at least for the foreseeable future. I'm sure maybe a few decades I will be proven wrong. But for those who are starting their career now, they're still going to need to know how to play well with others. They cannot be arrogant about their knowledge of technology and think their bosses are incompetent simply because they're not as fast with an Excel spreadsheet. And that's, that's my biggest advice. To me personally, because of my path, um, I think I would encourage er- anyone, and I would encourage myself, to be more confident earlier on to, to uh, trust my instinct and uh, um, take some risks a little bit sooner. But at the same time, I don't have any regrets because sometimes being patient and paying your dues can really help you.
0: Would you recommend uh, management to a young person? Uh, there's, there's other choices they might make as, in terms of professions, but what would you say?
1: What I would recommend, and I've seen some extremely effective young managers, right? We always have the outliers. But if we agree that effective management entails not only technical skills, but the ability to not use those technical skills, but to build others to use them, right? It's probably one of the biggest challenges. I have a program right now called Aspiring Leaders, that we teach quarterly. So all uh, individual contributors in the organization who are aspiring to become leaders attend this program, which entails for the most part some e-learning modules, but two workshops. In the first one, we talk about the difference between being an individual contributor and being a manager. We send them to do their homework, and then we bring them back. And we ask, what did you learn? And do you still want to be a manager? And the answer is usually yes, And it's a yes, but, yes, but now I understand how this is going to change. For example, I never thought that once I become a manager, my buddies are going to be my employees, possibly. And they may be resentful, or they may be uncomfortable, or we may not be able to have lunch together anymore. And all of the things that we know um, can be surprises. I never thought about the fact that once I become a manager, I shouldn't be the one designing the beautiful spreadsheets. It's going to be somebody else's job. And my focus is going to be in developing them and telling them what I expect and giving them the feedback. It's a completely different type of work if done correctly. So to a young person who aspires to management, I would say absolutely. Uh, But first of all, I would say get to know yourself. Be sure that you want to be a manager for the right reasons. We see by using the four basic personality profiles of our employees who become hired at the organization, about half of the employees in the biotech industry are considered high patience and high formality. So their preference is to work in a structured environment, follow strict direction, do not rattle the world, give them advance notice, and they're going to be very diligent and detail-oriented because they do not like to be caught being wrong. And we need We need our working bees, we need everybody to bring their skills to the table. The biggest tragedy is when a person whose essence is to be a diligent, detail-oriented analyst perceives that being a manager is a better path because it's more prestigious. So it's the conversation we were having about astronauts, right? Not everybody can be an astronaut. Most people feel that having that visible high-level title, is the true essence of success. And it can be if that's what you want and who you are. But the worst, the biggest tragedy is pursuing something without having the right wiring, the right skill set, inclination, and motivation.
0: Continue on, if you would, about the, uh, you said half of your people, that was very interesting. Half of them are wired to be, uh, more individual contributors, and what about the other? What are the other profiles?
1: So the other two quarters are the so-called dominant personalities. It's not a nice word, but it means driven, and probably a good fifty to seventy-five percent of managers fall into one of those high dominance profile. Uh, research shows that managers in general tend to have drive, a certain amount of risk tolerance independence. They would rather ask for uh, forgiveness than permission. And not necessarily because of an ego reason, because they really uh, cherish being responsible. They really cherish having the opportunity to make a difference, and maybe they're open to making some mistakes and correcting them later. Low patience means action orientation. Medium formality means I'll take some risks. Not great risks. I don't want to destroy my company. So the majority of managers fit in that profile. And or are high extroverts. And the high extroverts, who may or may not be high dominance, are the ones who are more motivated by status and prestige. But they're also motivated by helping people. So they're the most difficult ones to place. What happens is that as an extrovert, you truly care about people. I had a boss like that. She would go and meet everybody every day. How are you doing? You know, and I would make a beeline for my office. But And I'm an extrovert, but not to that level. <laughs> um, really caring. How are you? How's your family? But conversely, when you value people, you also value their opinion of you in some cases. So the people who are high extroversion and high dominance tend to be managers who are motivated by status, by a big office, by a nice car, the beautiful home, give me the title, right? And those are the managers that I would caution to stay abreast of new technologies, continue learning, because a few of the folks I know in that category stopped learning once they got the big title. They had people's approval and respect and admiration, and that they made it. The title was The Goal, not The Means.
0: I want to ask you, since uh, we were talking a little bit before we started um, offline, that um, I was curious, given your background growing up in Europe, if it's a uniquely American phenomena where everybody wants to be an astronaut, everybody wants to be the CEO. Um, You know, as I pointed out, uh, when I went to NASA, I realized, or they, they told me, that uh, right now there's a couple people circling around the planet in low orbit on the uh, space station. But it took about 80,000-plus people to put them up there. And, and that's a lot of folks for one person to be you know, enjoying the ride around. So, so I think everybody wants to be in the space capsule, but as a practical matter, not all of us can do that, or and a lot of us don't want to do that. So what is it about us that you think that we all want to be the, the big cheese?
1: Well, if I look at the American culture and just looking at all the studies that um, uh, Professor Hofstede made about IBM and how the different corporate cultures are in each country, and he studied like 180 of them, the United States consistently scores first as far as individualism and also one of the last as far as power distance. So as a culture, I call you Michael. I don't call you Mr. Friedman here. In Italy, I would probably call you Dr. Friedman. Whether you are a doctor or not, right? So we, um, I like that part, right? see, <laughs> I will do that going forward. But he, here in the States, um, the culture is more competitive. And at the same time, power is not seen as unattainable. We are allowed to call our bosses by their first name. If you go to other countries, Mexico being a prime example, you don't question your boss. You never say, oops, uh, I think that's incorrect. Korea think of the Asian cultures right the power distance is huge so depending on the culture the one thing that's common is there is a perception that having the top title is is a good thing is is something to aspire to Um, the what I go back to is two things what is personality so you're gonna have your high extroversion high dominance people who are motivated partially by what they put on the business card and show their mom or their neighbor. So that's, to me, a primary universal impulse, right? If we look at the Maslow needs hierarchy, self-actualization is at the very top. So we all share in that, although it means different things to different people. And that's not tied to culture. So there's a human impulse that wants us to be the best that we can be. For some, it may be to own a Ben and Jerry... Or a liquor store and, or ice cream store and to others it may be being a CEO and then culturally um, depending on, on the country uh, I think the difference is a lot of people don't feel like they can aspire to that the, the, the one thing in which the United States still excels is the land of opportunity and that's where it, uh, it lies it lies in the fact that you see power as attainable because you get to call your boss by his first name You get to beat him at golf if you go and play. Uh, You may go shopping with her. It's a lot different in countries where the power distance is much more pronounced. And uh, maybe ambitions have to be tamed because of that.
0: It's very interesting. And what I hear you say, it's important for people to understand and know themselves so they can see what motivates them to be a manager. Is it just going for the status or power or is it really um, a thing that is authentically…
1: In the predictive index methodology, and the predictive index is the only fully validated one of the few fully validated uh, assessments that tells us, based on the employee's personality, how we can predict our behavior. And it consists of three parts. The first one is, it is self-reported, the way the employee sees herself or himself. The second is how the employee feels they have to appear to show up in the workplace to be successful. And the third one is a synthesis. So I see dozens of these, and I'm always a little surprised when I see that some folks have a self perception that is quite different from their self. That's the image that they want to project. Mm. I feel that must be a painful life. Right. If you constantly have to come across as more decisive so you can be a manager, or more patient so that you will not rattle the boat, or more formal because your creative nature is not going to be appreciated. That's my my wish for every young person joining the, the workforce is take some time to understand who you are, what you're good at, and what you're willing to compromise. If title is what you really want, but it's not what you're cut out for, think twice because it's painful to live a life that is chosen not because of who you are naturally, but because who you want to be. To impress others,
0: that's really well said, Laura. As you reflect now on your at this point in your career, you're not done yet. But uh, to this to this point, what are you most proud of as uh, your, your the accomplishment that stands out for you as a as a mid level manager?
1: So, something that recently happened and made me really proud is um, I achieved a long um, a lifelong dream, which was to uh, be placed in charge of the strategy function in my organization. And as a middle manager, right? So that's particularly interesting because one of the peculiarities as a middle manager is that you have a vantage point to those who are above you. So you work directly with your senior leadership team, and you have a pretty good view of the whole organization in the entry-level roles all the way up to management. So... You have a responsibility and opportunity to translate the vision from the top and help cascading it down. And there is a redeeming quality to that in that um, you're given some passes. Because you're not a member of the senior leadership team, if your efforts and your intentions are considered honorable... And you miss the mark on a few things because you're not in all of those top meetings, and you may not know that some decisions have been made, but you give suggestions based on your role and are being told, yeah, well, we already considered that. It's usually not held against you. Again, do things for the right intentions, with the right intentions, and make sure that you're true to the reasons why you're providing those. recommendations. And so with my small team of two other folks, strategy team, we were able to influence the whole leadership team, the top, the senior leadership team, to create an an interdependent strategy map. Not individual maps for each silo, but one that connected all of the different pieces. And that was a proud moment because the CEO was very specific, um, personally approved of that, and also said, you guys were able to understand my vision. I articulated it to a point, but you guys got my drift and were able to create a tool that hopefully will bring people together and make them work collaboratively, whether they like it or not. They're going to have to learn to do that to achieve collectively the strategy vision. So I'm very proud of that um, because um, it's something I always look forward to having an opportunity to work with.
0: Very interesting. And on a personal level, with uh, people that you might have mentored, because I know you're involved as a teacher, and so uh, tell me a little bit about that in terms of what you, what you look back in terms of accomplishments, and maybe younger people that you've whose lives you've affected.
1: There are a couple of folks. I, I, I'm very fortunate. I have a team of stars, and about three of these folks, I always joke that I plucked them from a fate worse than the frying pan. Right? I think it's a Donald Duck type of metaphor. <laughs> Uh, this young gentleman, who's an introvert, very polite young man, he was making $12 an hour as an intern at the front desk of corporate communications answering the phone. And when I started at my current company, I needed help with, I, I was a, a training director at the time, and I needed help with audiovisuals. I said, you got to tell me where stuff is, I've figured out that I'll be self-sufficient. And this gentleman showed me everything, you know, it was late 20s, and uh, um, young man, very polite, very professional, always responded timely, good work. And I remember telling him, hey, Ryan, man, I just wish you had some kind of education background or HR because I need a technical training specialist. And you seem to have the right skills. But, and he said, as a matter of fact, I'm a second grade teacher by trade. I tried it and realized that kids were not my thing. <laughs> That's why it's so important exactly. to know yourself, right? <laughs> and I said, Bingo. So uh, since then he's had three promotions, and we realized that really teaching wasn't his thing. But he's an incredible analyst. He's getting his PMP certification. He's going back to college to get a master's in data analytics. He's our HR information system specialist. So that's one one guy. Another lady, her only resume was troop leader for Girl Scouts. Forty year old, just got her HR degree. Super dynamic. Uh, A mess. You see this lady dressed like almost like a gypsy, right? Uh, Beautiful, spontaneous person. You would never peg her for an HR job. Well, she is amazing, amazing, amazing employee. She came in. I was able to influence my leadership and say, I think she would be a great compensation person. They wanted to place her in recruitment, thinking, mistaking her sociability for uh, patients with people. Now that, that that was not my assessment. Uh, works great with others, but her ability to put together compensation models, to communicate them to the tough customers, to design processes, to learn new technologies—just amazing. Uh, very, very proud of her, and she has a great career ahead of her. You have you have to spot that talent, and it, it gives me great joy to think. This guy could still be answering phones, and he had all this raw talent, and, and you know nobody recognized it, or they felt he was too quiet, or who knows? He would not have emerged by himself, because that's not his nature.
0: In your, in your role as a manager, you could spot that and, and help make a difference there. Great.
1: Laura, um, any other
0: ground that we might have passed over, or any other comments you want to make about life as a manager, or how you see things?
1: Well... The one thing that I think is important that I live by, I would say two things, two things that I've learned. One that I've pretty much had probably already hardwired in me is never stop learning. No matter what your title is, no matter how much money you you make, whether you're retired or actively employed, whether you're a consultant or a corporate head, never assume that you don't need to learn. And today that's even more true. Continue reading, continue getting certified, um, explore new grounds, ask for new assignments, stick your neck out. Um, that's one of the big things. That, that. And, and the other, the one that I've particularly embraced now and that I haven't learned very long ago is be good to yourself. I know a lot of folks that burn the midnight oil all the time They always look exhausted. They're always on some kind of diet with no sugar, no protein. I don't know what they eat. One of them works for me and I said, dude, have a steak. Well, I'm on this fast and on this thing. Get seven hours of sleep every night. Eat three meals. Go to the gym. Do some yoga. And you'll see that your energy level will be so much better. And you can get your work done in 10 hours a day. Do the 80-20. Follow the 80-20 rule. I found that because I used to be one that I would skip meals and said, okay, I'll stay up all night. It doesn't help. Eventually catches up with you. The quality of your work suffers. Your relationships suffer. When we talk about work-life balance, sometimes people scoff. Say, oh, work-life balance is only for the folks who don't want to work hard enough. And I think it's very incorrect to look at it that way. So if I can create opportunities for my direct reports to occasionally work from home, um, to take care of their kids while they're in school and having events, I think it pays off in spades. Be care, be, be be kind to yourself. Take care of yourself, and your work will show it. It's not quantity; it's quality.
0: Laura, any other anything else?
1: I um. The only thing that I wanted to go back to is reminding, um, you had asked me to, to, to mention a book.
0: All right. One of the things we share is an interest in reading, and uh, you're a reader, uh, and... Uh,
1: and continuously learning, right? Yes.
0: So talk to me a little bit about that.
1: So I brought a book called Execution, The Discipline of Getting Things Done. I'm currently reading it. It's by a gentleman named Larry Bossidy, who's the former chairman and CEO of Honeywell International. And at a minimum, it gives us food for thought in remembering that our great intellect, our beautiful strategic plans need to translate into execution or our companies will be left behind. And as we were mentioning before, creativity is one of the skills or competencies that are most at a premium nowadays and that top leaders look for. We want the innovators. We want the people to think outside the box. And we need that. But those people are even more valuable if, besides having these brilliant ideas, they can come to us with a plan to make them happen and not assume that somebody else will have to figure out a way. Because I I jokingly say ideas are cheap. But it's true. You can have great ideas, but if if it's all they remain and there's no execution – they don't add value and don't pay the bills.
0: Laura, I really appreciate your comments. It's uh, As much as we've talked, I've learned uh, a lot uh, through our conversation this afternoon and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. And um, again, thanks.
1: See you soon. Bye. Bye.